Here's what's coming up today on the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Aliens traversed the stars, kick-started the apes that were currently walking around here, gave them fire, gave them language, gave them gods, etc. It had to be aliens because even these free thinkers, these people on the History Channel, they can't get to a place mentally where they can outright buck the traditional wisdom and assume that maybe, just maybe, human civilization has waxed and waned throughout a longer time period than history previously thought. And welcome once again, everybody, to another episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. My name is Pete Lieb. I'm your host today. Uh, we're going to have ourselves a good time. I'm by myself, but that's okay. I think we've proven now that we can drive this ship on our own. So I I'm not just a podcast host. I'm also a consumer and actually a voracious consumer. I listen to a lot of podcasts during the day. Joe Rogan, Lore, Ben Shapiro, Eddie Trunk, Coast to Coast, the list goes on and on and on. And in fact, listening to others is what gave me the idea that maybe I could do it myself, which makes sense, right? If you want to do something, you really should study it first. If you wanted to be a novelist, the first thing you should do and what would make you better is to read. Read a lot. Read a lot of different authors. Kind of get an idea for how they do what they do, how they practice the craft. So I listened to a lot of others talk and tell their stories and a lot of other formats and ways of expressing themselves. And I found myself spending a lot of time forming my own ideas about topics, and I had no outlet to voice my thoughts. I have a lot of random thoughts, as you have probably noticed if you've been listening to the podcast for any period of time, and sometimes that tends to wear sane people out. So I need a different outlet. I need some other way of getting out all the things that are in my head and keeping myself occupied. So I said to myself, I said, self, you can speak, but do you have something to say? And that's always the primary question, though, isn't it? right? Do you have something to say? Because if not, you end up being like one of those weirdly foreign sounding guys on YouTube, uh, just counting down the top five paranormal videos caught in morgues. And by weirdly foreign, I mean weirdly foreign sounding. Uh, like I don't know where you came from with that accent. Without a face, it's kind of hard to tell where your broken English hails from. The cadence is stunted, unnatural, almost sounds like a computer speaking. It probably is a computer speaking. But if not, I need to know how you get that job, right? So you meet a guy at a party, you're like, hey, buddy, what do you do for a living? Well, I am glad you asked. I am the weird and unnatural voice on your favorite YouTube videos. It's kind of kind of weird, sorry. You And you've caught me ranting already. We've been in the podcast three minutes, and I'm already going off the rails. Anyway, I like to listen to podcasts. I listen to a lot. Personally, probably Joe Rogan is my favorite, just from the standpoint that he gets a really a wide variety of guests. It's more of a random topic show, similar to what I do here. It isn't too focused. Being a comic himself, he is heavy on comics. And while I tend to like a lot of comics, there's only so much that I can take. Guys trying to be funnier than each other every day. It does tend to wear me out eventually on the daily but I eat it up when he has a Bob Lazar on talking about Area 51, working on alien spacecraft, something straight out of a movie like Independence Day, or Dom D'Agostino who's talking about his research with the keto diet. Basically, I just like to learn something. 
And I enjoy when he has people on the show who are really trying something different outside the norm, pushing the envelope, and it allows me to learn. And also he has a way of relating to people personally that allows uninteresting people to be somehow interesting. Like a lot of these scientists, they are so smart, they can't get out of their own heads and really don't have much personality. You know, you know the, the type, right? We've all met or had opportunity to interact with one of these people in the past who just starts droning on with no inflection, no in- excitement, nothing to distinguish one word from the other. And you can tolerate that for about three minutes before that boredom sets in and the brain circus comes to town and I take a seat and start watching the trapeze, which is a shame because I'm probably missing some absolute pearls of wisdom. But I can't get past the delivery, the equivalent of a Prius in human form. Having one would probably enhance my life for sure if I can keep myself from driving it off a cliff out of sheer boredom. So you have to be careful when you're dealing with those kind of people because if you're too boring, you've lost me. Conversely, if you are talking down to me or you're just too dismissive, you've lost me because we have come to a point in society where we have begun to compare credentials. And your credentials directly affect the validity of your argument. The validity of your argument seems directly tied to the number of degrees you have. There's this smugness to some of the educated that is ultimately and supremely off-putting. If you cannot match my level of education, you have no opinion. If you can't match my online doctorate from the University of Phoenix with one of your own, you cannot have a well-formed opinion based on independent thought. So you might as well just simply sit back and listen to me speak at you. You Have you ever listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson? And honestly, his name is only in my mouth because he was recently on Joe Rogan. If you haven't listened to him, you'll probably only do it once. He has that air about him that gives off this level of superiority that is unparalleled. And it just may be that day or that one-off situation, but it was pretty apparent through the whole episode to me that he thinks every statement, every statement that falls from his lips is life-saving nectar that you, the uneducated, should be diving to the floor to catch in your cupped hands because it just may save your life. And that's no way to talk to people. And Joe Rogan, again, who's incredibly good at it, he was essentially a child to him that he would very graciously give a verbal pat on the head to from time to time as if to say, good boy, Joe, you actually understood the point I was trying to make there. And did he do it on purpose? No, probably not. In fact, I'm sure he probably didn't. He was probably just trying his hardest to connect with Joe and miss the mark. And sarcasm is a knife in the hand of the overly intelligent. It really is. It'll kill you. And he is obviously incredibly intelligent. I would love to talk to him because he really knows his shit. But it comes down to how you connect and how you deal with people. If you make a person feel stupid for asking a question, they'll stop asking questions. And what is your education worth if it isn't enriching those around you? So I guess I'm saying communication style is a very, very fine line. Can't be too dull or your message is lost. You got to maintain contact with your fellow man. You got to stay in touch. That's how you get things done in the world. And no offense to Neil, I'm sure he's a great guy. But it just struck me listening to him on that day that he is the establishment when it comes to all things science and technology, right? The establishment stance and, you know, settled science. History is settled. There is nothing more on the planet to continue to research. There's no reason to keep asking questions and challenging the official story. The truth is already written. This establishment is the stone wall that you run into when you try to pose an alternative to the mainstream. You raise a question or a competing hypothesis, 
and you faced career castration. And again, my apologies to Neil. He just brought it to mind. And see, now I feel guilty for coming so hard for Neil. But my point is, what if they got it wrong? What if history isn't settled? The history of all of us. What if it was just forgotten and rewritten over time in a way that we could rationalize based on current understanding? And then we institutionalize that understanding and that story into fact. Then we teach it to our kids, pass it down from generation to generation until it becomes the truth. And then the actual truth becomes an old legend told by a shaman or witch doctors. And I bring this up because a couple of other guests of Joe Rogan that I absolutely love are two men named Robert Schock and Graham Hancock. And they are regular guests on the podcast as well. And honestly, they are a few of the guests that I will make sure I listen to every time they're on. And I would recommend them to you as well. And they have what some would call controversial theories. And it's the theory that civilization potentially didn't start when we think it did, and that it was significantly older than currently believed. And Shock, for his part, was one of the first people to suggest that the Sphinx and the pyramids of Egypt may not have been built when current Egyptologists suggest, and therefore also weren't built by who they say they were built by. And Graham Hancock plays off this by suggesting that advanced human civilizations have existed previously throughout history, and the evidence is compelling, and it's all around us. So one of the most popular shows on the History Channel, it's called Ancient Aliens. It's the show with the Greek dude with the ridiculous hair, and they put forth the suggestion that really every anomaly that currently exists between what historians and so-called experts think our human capabilities were throughout history, and then the structures that we can actually see with our own eyes that don't fit into that box, and there are literally hundreds of those sites. They pose it has to be aliens. Aliens came down to Earth, built impossible structures with stones so large and massive and intricate that we cannot recreate them even now. And then they just apparently left. Aliens traversed the stars, kick-started the apes that were currently walking around here, gave them fire, gave them language, gave them gods, etc. It had to be aliens because... Even these free thinkers, these people on the History Channel, they can't get to a place mentally where they can outright buck the traditional wisdom and assume that maybe, just maybe, human civilization has waxed and waned throughout a longer time period than history previously thought. So, to me, is it really easier to believe that aliens flew across space, millions of light years potentially, and landed here? then it would be to think that maybe humans have peaked and then fallen through time. Is it more logical to accept that explanation? We already have proof that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens have coexisted. So we have been here since the cavemen at least. Homo sapiens, us, right now. We have been here since the Neanderthals. So if modern man was on Earth that long, why do we assume that at that point they must have been idiots? We're incapable of any type of achievement and civilization like we have now. Why is there this assumption that we are, right now, the best we have ever been, and that we have never been equal or better than now? That is extremely prideful in my mind. I think that there is every reason to believe, logically, that we have been here before, in this space, in this technological era. 
I mean, what are the Egyptian hieroglyphics anyway, right? Current emojis carved into stone. We are back at that exact same spot. Our kids are talking in pictures. So Robert Schock, he visited Egypt in the early 90s, and he is a geologist by trade, not a historian. So obviously he went there to look at the rocks themselves, not necessarily to marvel at the architecture and the human achievement. And I'm listening to him talk, and he says something to the point of, I looked at the Sphinx for about three minutes and determined that it could not have been built at the time the historians have claimed. And, you know, that kind of piqued my curiosity. My ears perked up. Why is that? And it was quite simple for him. It was clear that there was erosion activity on the stone of the Sphinx. And erosion like that did not happen quickly, but by prolonged exposure to flowing water. Water exposure, which had not happened in that part of the world since about 10,000 BC, 12,000 years ago. Now, this is obviously extremely at odds with the Egyptian history that has claimed that the pyramids were built around 5,000 years ago, you know, 3,500 BC or so. Egypt is very proud of this history, and Shock's claims are not popular, right? <laughs> They're obviously not popular because it meant that they simply inherited these structures from an earlier civilization and didn't build them. But it has long been a puzzle as to how these enormous structures were built by comparatively primitive people, right? That's a question that we've been asking forever, as far as I can tell. How were two million blocks of stone weighing roughly two and a half to three tons each, how were they quarried? How were they transported? How were they placed in an age without heavy machinery, without hauling equipment? The sides of the pyramid are so perfect, 750 feet long on each side, and each corner aligning perfectly with north, south, east, and west. Perfect astronomical positioning. And allegedly, they were just built in 20 years, according to the consistent worldwide historical record, which would mean that a constant conveyor belt of enormous stones have been placed every five minutes with each block perfectly placed to the point where the walls were mere inches off of perfection all the way around, around the clock, 24 hours a day for 20 years. And supposedly this was done using thousands of slaves and ramps. Uh, a ramp like that would have had to have been more than a mile long, and it would have had to have an angle shallow enough to drag the stones up there, these three-ton stones. Where did the ramp go? It would have been just as big as the pyramid itself. The act of dismantling the ramp would have taken 20 years. And here's something else to think about. The base of the pyramid is level to within about half an inch. Think of the work to get the foundation, the bedrock that the pyramid sits on, strong enough to hold 600 million pounds of weight and be perfectly level for 5,000, 10,000, 12,000 years. Hell, my house isn't that level. It was built five years ago. Even more ridiculous, the Great Pyramid is situated at the exact center of Earth's landmass, which means that east-west and north-south parallels, they only occur twice in two places on the Earth, right? One on one side and then the other side. One of which is exactly placed on the Great Pyramid, apparently by luck, because these people are slaves and they're essentially primitive. I could go on and on and on about the pyramids. You can look those up. It would take me four episodes, two hours a pop to give you all the reasons why, potentially, the pyramids were not constructed when and how they say they have been. 
The truth is, they are just too amazing and too perfect to have been created when scholars say they were, period. And moreover, there's actually no proof that they were ever used for tombs. There were no bodies ever found in any pyramid and no coffins. They, it was all made up. It was a, a tall tale. It was so tall, in fact, that it was more logical to simply say that aliens built the pyramids than we did. That's kind of a test for whether an idea is absolutely crazy or not, in my mind. Whether the story of how it was made is so unbelievable that it is easier to believe aliens did it than humans did it. Because when you get to the point when you just get stuck and you kind of just throw up your hands and you give up, you know, because blaming it on aliens is lazy. That's lazy science. But it's easier than admitting the truth. Some people are probably thinking right now, okay, here we go with a conspiracy theory. The Egyptians obviously built it. They left emojis on the wall and said so. And the Egyptian scholars tell us it's true, so it must be, because why would they lie? Um, you know, how about because it's one of the greatest accomplishments known to man? And since no one else will claim it, we can. It's like waking up after a long night of drinking, all hungover, sick to your stomach, still got a little buzz on, look over to your left, and there's this half-naked supermodel laying next to you, Cindy Crawford in her prime. Now, I'm still a little drunk. I'm still a little messed up, and I have absolutely no idea what happened last night. But before you can ask her, a pal walks in and sees you both. Now what? Do you know for sure what happened last night? Hell no. But am I going to claim this amazing, unbelievable accomplishment for myself as a fact? You bet your ass I'm going to claim it. So I ask you, and that was a long-winded analogy there, but I ask you, what is the conspiracy here? A conspiracy to me means something was hidden, and how the hell can you hide a pyramid? There is no conspiracy here. It's simply a quest for knowledge and understanding and the truth of it. The real conspiracy would be those scholars who consistently refuse to consider any other alternative answer. So I kind of go back and say again, what if they are wrong? What if what we have been taught isn't accurate? Is it too late to rewrite history books? You know, one of the main criticisms of the proposals put forth by Robert Schock and Graham Hancock and others is the lack of physical evidence. And I've got my air quote fingers firing. Where is the physical evidence that a civilization that advanced existed so long ago? Where are the tools that were used on these structures? Where's the pottery shards that we can date back to the time frame that would support the idea? Well, let me ask you this, because the first time, every time I hear that, it makes me think of something right off the back. Let me say that carbon dating first is a guess, at best. There is actually no way to carbon date a rock. That isn't how it's done. They actually carbon date biomaterials found around the rock. So if they dig something up, they just date the biological material that's around it. And whatever the date they get for that material, they assume the rock is the same age. It's a guess. There's actually no proof that the tool that is sitting there is the age of the material around it. It may have been there for thousands of years earlier. Or, you know, we may have already have the tools and the shards that would prove earlier civilizations, but due to the limitations of our current dating processes, we just simply misclassify them. And that's an honest mistake, but it would be severely impactful. The second question is, what tools would you expect to find after 10,000 years? I could honestly park a damn backhoe 
at the base of a finished pyramid, and within 500 years, it's dust. Completely disintegrated, gone. If a meteor strikes the Earth today, in 500 years, almost nothing of our current civilization would exist. Nothing. Houses, cars, buildings, gone. Reclaimed by the Earth. The only thing left would be some huge monument, some stone structure carved from a base of a mountain, i.e. Mount Rushmore, Stone Mountain. Everything else is gone. They would find our pottery, air quotes again, maybe, the shards of our dinner plates and our fine china that have made it into the earth. But what would people 10,000 years from now think of our civilization, given there would be no remains of it? I would like to think probably these people who have now fully evolved again back into the masters of the planet would look at our lost civilization in much the same way that we look at other primitive civilizations. All that's left are our hieroglyphics, similar to the ones around the world showing working airplanes and, com and computers and spacemen. These things all exist, folks. There are hieroglyphs. There are pictures of all of these things. These things have been found in these ancient sites. Working model airplanes and pictures of what would obviously be interpreted as computers, electricity, spaceships, men in spacesuits. But we gloss over it and we call it aliens because we cannot wrap our brains around the fact that at some point in history, we may have been better than we are now. To us, we are better now than we have ever been. Blah, blah, blah. How did these cavemen build the ruins at Pumapunku in Bolivia? Once again, enormous structures with blocks weighing many tons. They're cut so perfectly that it staggers the mind. You can't get a piece of paper through the joints. The cuts on these stones are perfectly straight. The holes cored into these stones are perfectly circular. And they're all equal depth. No tool marks. How is it that these ancient people were able to cut stones like this on a mountain with this stone not readily available in that area, with no evidence of machinery or tools. All of the blocks are cut so that they interlock and they fit together like a puzzle. There is no mortar for the most part. If these people could have moved these large stones to this precise location, then obviously they also had a way to place them on top of one another. But how in the world was this accomplished? There were no trees in the area. The nearest quarry was 10 miles away. They have no records as to how any of this could have been done. And as far as most are concerned, there is no way that the Andean people could have done this 2,500 years ago. If they couldn't have done it, how is it possible that an even older group of people accomplished it? And by all accounts, it is highly unlikely that any of the stones in Pumapunku were cut using ancient stone-cutting techniques, or none that we are aware of, at least. The stones there are made up of granite and diorite, and the only stone that is harder than those two is a diamond. If the people who built this place cut these stones using stone techniques, they would have had to have diamond tools. If they didn't use diamonds, what do they use? Those are questions. Not only are these stones really hard to cut, but they're also extremely heavy, obviously. One of the stone ruins weighs about 800 tons. They are big, big stones, and they're really heavy. With the technology that we currently have today, it would be extremely difficult to create the site of these ruins, if possible at all. If we can't do it now, then how did these ancient people accomplish it then? 
these people had to obviously have been incredibly sophisticated. They had to know mathematics. They had to have some level of technology. They would have had to have incredible planning. They would have had to be able to write blueprints. They would have had to been able to machine all this material, put it in place, architecture. So of course, and unfortunately, it had to have been aliens because there's no way that humans were that advanced that long ago. That was always the argument. But then they we found a place, and actually it was found in the 60s, but they didn't really realize what it was in the 60s until the 90s, 1994, is when they actually understood that a place called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey happened. It is a man-made structure. It's located again in Turkey, and it was purposefully buried around 12,000 years ago. And this discovery potentially rewrites human history. It was first noted, again, back in the mid early 60s. And as usual, they really have no idea of what it was used for. And while the theories are wide-ranging, as always, our inability to think outside the box, and we live under this primary assumption that it had to be religious in nature because we can't get past the idea that these people had to be primitive and therefore everything was an homage to a god. It very easily could have been a zoo in the intricate stone animal carvings on the pillars. They could have been sign markers to an exhibit. But I'm not here to propose a purpose, just to comment that its mere existence flips history on its head. There are many sites around the world that have been simply discounted as man-made because the dates of construction don't add up to our current historical timelines. There are actually large pyramid structures off the coast of Japan. And get ready because I'm about to just absolutely butcher the name of it. I think it's Yonaguni Pyramid off the coast of Japan with just you know flat parallel faces, sharp edges, right angles, obviously visually man-made. The problem is if any part of that monument was actually constructed purposefully by man, it would have had to have happened 12,000 years ago when the sea level was much lower than it is today. Yunaguni Pyramid is actually under about 100 feet of water you know, as the oceans rose after the last ice age. So again, that doesn't fit in their historical timelines. The Sea of Japan at the time, it was a, you know, an inland sea. People and animals, they could walk across the peninsula from continent to continent. So that area would have been dry and it could have housed civilization. So during that past 10,000 years, that ocean water level has risen to the point where this is all underwater now. So now it's only natural to think that many civilizations are now deep underwater. You know, think of the cities that we have right now on the coast of, you know, the United States, on the coast of really any country in the world. Primarily, cities are built on the coast, most of the big cities. If the sea levels were to rise, those cities would be in danger. We're talking about it now with climate change. The melting ice caps are going to rise the sea levels to the point where a place like Miami is underwater. This would have happened back then as well. So it is logical to think that there were large civilizations that were flooded and essentially no longer exist. And so then you get these legends and myths of places like Atlantis, which were incredibly technologically advanced and uh, an incredible civilization that was wiped off the map after a large flood, after it essentially sunk into the ocean, or the ocean came and got it. Either one. So even though there is scientific evidence to explain the ruins, 
there are plenty of people and archaeologists who simply discount it because to acknowledge that this building was built that long ago would have to be to acknowledge that the level of human achievement at that point was significantly higher than where we thought it was. So the point here is that there is ample evidence all over the world that would suggest that our society has not been a steady incline from amoeba to well-formed homo sapien, but kind of a series of starts and stops. I've mentioned that idea in the past, and there's a lot of evidence that these structures mentioned today were built and inhabited around the time of the last ice age, a time when oceans were significantly lower, land mass was more pronounced, and allowed a lot more uh, additional buildable area. And these discoveries start to lend a lot more support to some of the oral legends that we grew up listening to. Again, from that Atlantis myth being lost in a flood to the great flood itself listed in the Bible. So now based on the findings uh, at Gobekli Tepe and Pumapunku and the water erosion around the Sphinx, you have evidence that advanced civilizations existed on Earth around 12,000 years ago. We also have evidence that they existed at the same time as the most recent ice age. So we're talking two-mile-high glaciers in the northern hemisphere coexisting with these very technologically advanced ancient civilizations that were situated near the coast in what would have been a much lower water level at the time. And then from the evidence we have, something catastrophic happened. Whether that be a meteor strike coming from outer space, and there are millions of pieces of space junk floating around out there, that's very, very plausible. We get hit by meteors all the time. What's to say they didn't get hit by something significantly larger? And in fact, Graham Hancock, a lot of his research was around the idea that the cause of the great flood of the Bible or the great flood that potentially destroyed some of these ancient civilizations along the coastlines when the sea rose dramatically was based on an asteroid strike, a rogue asteroid that came in, struck the planet, struck actually up near into the glaciers, into those two-mile-high glaciers in the area near Michigan or in the Canadian border. And there is evidence of a significant amount of cast-off from that explosion, the meteorite actually came in and hit the glacier. And I've spoken about this in a previous podcast, but I'll, I'll reiterate it. The meteor actually came in and hit the glacier, and the explosion sent cast off in multiple directions. And there are signs of that, either it be in Kansas, where these enormous pieces of ice hit the ground and actually carved ruts into the ground in Kansas and North Carolina. Now they look like little ponds, but in reality, it's more likely that they were enormous impact craters from these glaciers after they had been struck. And the intense heat of that asteroid hitting the top of that two-mile glacier caused an immediate flash flood so intense that it actually left ripples in the ground in Montana. And these things are, you really can't see them, obviously, when you're standing at the ground level because they're enormous. They actually look like hills in the ground. But when you're from a height, when you're above them, you can tell that it's actually the same type of phenomenon as when a wave crashes into the sand on the coastline and you get those ripples in the sand. The same phenomena happened in the ground in Montana and it's still there. So there was an enormous, immediate, massive flooding that occurred in that area in a very short period of time to carve those channels out of the ground. 
And so Graham Hancock's hypothesis on that is that this was the byproduct of a meteor impact. What that then did also was that enormous release of water rose the oceans. And that instant ocean rise due to the flooding, all those land bridges that we talked about previously are gone underwater. A lot of the landmass that was available where civilizations have been found were flooded and were lost forever. And when something like that happens, there is no way to plan for those type of situations. They simply occur, and then you do it the best that you can with it. So there would be survivors, I'm sure of it, you know, especially the farther away from the glacier that you are, farther away from the impact zone that you are, it gives you time to escape. So you wouldn't think that all of the people in those particular areas would have been killed. There would have been survivors, especially if they actually did have the level of technology and civilization that I've been proposing in this podcast. It's logical to think they might have been traveling. They may have had air travel, travel by boat. People would have been out of the general area at the time of the catastrophe. Where would those survivors go? Well, those survivors would probably go to the more primitive areas, and they would mix in with you know, the indigenous peoples that are there. Well, what that does is that, you know, those those particular people, and we have them today, those people are still existing in South America right now. There are tribes of people right now who have either never seen civilization or have only seen it fleetingly. They don't understand what civilization is. There are big gaps. If you look out from space and you look at the, the earth at night and you'll see these big pockets of bright light, but then you see these really dark spaces. The people that live in those dark spaces don't need the things that we have every day and that we take for granted. Those things don't matter to them. So if, heaven forbid, there's an electromagnetic pulse EMP or another asteroid strike hits the Earth now and our power grid is gone, this while civilized society is in turmoil, it's business as usual in those places. But then suddenly they start seeing this large influx of different looking people who have different language, who potentially have different quote-unquote powers. I'm using my my quote fingers again. Different superpowers. And they're looked at as gods. They're bringing language and technology and art and all these other things to these primitive people that they've never seen before. So what would they do? What would you do? Of course, you're going to look at these individuals as alien or as gods in some way, when in reality, they were probably just living in a on Miami and the water crested in, over the walls of Miami and Miami is flooded out and they had to move someplace else. Say an asteroid hit today somewhere in Antarctica and caused an enormous flash flooding from the ice sheets in Antarctica. What would happen if the ocean levels rose 40, 50, 60 feet virtually overnight? There would be an enormous loss of life along the coastlines, whether it be Miami, the Keys, New York City. A lot of these places that are right on the water or, or close to the water could potentially be lost forever. Where would they go? These people would still live. They would still survive. But where would they go? And then if the power grid is knocked down and we don't have the power that we have now or the com- creature comforts that we're used to now, most people right now don't even know how to start a fire on their own without a gas line or a, a lighter. They don't know how to do those things on their own. We have gotten away from a society that is hunting. We have gone to a society that is consuming and purchasing. We purchase things. We don't actually go out and kill the animal ourselves. We buy it. We buy it at the grocery store. What if the grocery store no longer has power? That meat's rotten. That meat's spoiled. Now you have to actually 
either grow it yourself or kill it yourself. There would be an enormous extinction event that occurred across the world, especially in a lot of the developed countries. In the underdeveloped countries, business as usual, no problem. In the developed countries, Europe, the United States, chaos, death, and destruction. There are definitely parts of the earth that would have enormous problem coping with that type of overnight catastrophe. Within the first 90 days, we'd have an enormous die-off of individuals who just simply starve to death or kill each other for resources, what have you. It's anarchy. But there would be survivors. Where would those survivors go if Miami is flooded out and they had to go somewhere else? Maybe they end up in a place that does not have the same level of civilization or technology that they currently had, bringing society and culture to these people. And eventually, the history that they had built simply becomes an oral tradition. That oral tradition becomes a legend, and that legend is forgotten or whispered about or written in books that we call mythology, and others call the Bible. There's plenty of evidence that a lot of the events that occurred in the Bible have some historical basis. Some things actually did occur. And while it seems fantastic when you think about the story of the flood in the Bible, we're seeing proof of that now. We're seeing evidence that that type of event occurred. And it may not have been worldwide, but if you're sitting in Ohio and there's a flash flood in Ohio and suddenly everything you see is underwater, wouldn't you think it was the entire world? Everywhere I saw was underwater. It doesn't mean that it's accurate or that it's true but it's your experience. And so then that suddenly gets translated into a worldwide flood. Everything was underwater. Why did our, our God do this to us? And then suddenly it's, it's solidified that way. It makes sense that you would pass these oral traditions down for thousands and thousands of years. And then finally, when you get back to a point where you are technologically advanced enough to put these back into written form, they've become mythology. And then they're looked at as, oh, wives' tales and... and lies and fiction. Think about the fact that now that we have gotten to a point in our technological advancement that we have people regularly living 100 years. We're getting to the point where we are starting to replace defective body parts. We're working with 3D printers, getting ourselves to a point where we can reproduce organs that start to fail, reproduce body parts that are broken or diseased. Our health has gotten better. Our nutrition has gotten better. Our medical technology has improved to the point where it's not unreasonable to think that maybe in three, four hundred years, we may be living two or three hundred year lives. And then suddenly those lifespans of uh, those individuals in the Bible start to line up. Maybe those ancient texts, those works of fiction, are actually just an oral retelling several thousand years old of what once was truth. And after this catastrophic event, whether it be an asteroid strike or maybe their version of a nuclear war, Whatever it was that caused that enormous flash flooding end to the last ice age, in effect, destroyed those civilizations of that technology. And it took several thousand years to get back to that point. And I think we would be there. I think that would absolutely occur right now. As I've talked about earlier, if something occurred today, it would be catastrophic. It would be worldwide, but it wouldn't be everyone. Life would go on. That 
technology would continue for a short period of time. Finally, it would be bred out. It would be lost. You would not have the ability to continue to do that. And it may take several thousand years to get back to a point where you were before. And there was a game when I was younger. It's a PC game. I think it's actually still still around. I think they're in probably like the ninth version of it called Civilization. And I bring it up because I, I thought it was really an interesting game. And it was a lot of fun to play because you would start the game and you would kind of pick your nationality. You would pick what you want to be and you could say you want to pick American. And it starts you off with just this little plot of land and you have to explore different plots of land and as you explore them, you open them up. Eventually, you are researching different technologies. You are building an army. You are building uh, your fortifications in your society. And eventually, you meet other cultures and it's essentially a world domination or a diplomatic game, whatever. But the point I'm trying to make is you could pick American 10 times. You could start your civilization that way 10 times. And every one of those times, you would evolve differently. It doesn't really matter. It, it almost doesn't even matter if you make very, very similar choices. Just the minute, small differences in the choices that you make during the game run have an enormous effect by the end of the game as to how you advanced technologically, uh, civilization-wise. So the point is, our civilization now wouldn't be, hypothetically, the exact same way that the technological advancements in, let's say, Atlantis were 12,000 years ago. They may have had a completely different technological style than we have now. And if that asteroid hits tomorrow, and our civilization as we know it is effectively wiped away, in six, seven thousand, eight thousand years when humankind rises back up again, because they will, because they have the mental capacity to do it, it may be completely different again. We may have a completely different set of technological advancements and have gone in a completely different way. That's the great thing about it. There are so many options. One small little blip in the process could change everything down the road. Who's to say that the, the primary building materials 12,000 years ago weren't just enormous stones that we don't have the capability of using right now to construct buildings with? And so then we continue to have remnants of this past society. We wouldn't have any of that with our current civilization. It would all be gone. People 5,000 years from now may see Mount Rushmore. That's it. And then they'll wonder how the hell these primitive people that lived in that time that we don't have any proof of their tools or their pottery or their civilization, how the hell did they do that? It'll be the exact same conversation. And you'll have a lot of these educated elites who think that history is settled, science is settled, there's nothing else for us to explore. This just occurred. It had to be aliens. And you'll have the history channel of that time, whatever the hell that is. Who knows? They probably won't have televisions. It'll just beam it directly into your skull. They'll be talking about aliens, right? It'll be completely different. So I find the discussions with Hancock and Shock, fascinating, eye-opening, mind-altering, just slightly different viewpoints. It's not just the stock viewpoint that you're kind of spoon-fed. They show you some real evidence. There's real evidence there. They're just alternate realities. And the biggest problem I think that humans have, or the majority of people have, are digesting alternate answers to the same problem. And you see that a lot with kids nowadays the problem solving and the ability to look at something and say there are multiple ways to solve this problem and there are multiple realities for how this outcome could resolve itself they're having a, they have a real hard time 
seeing that. And I think, unfortunately, the more educated you become and the more degrees you become and the more you're indoctrinated into that lifestyle, the harder it is for you to see past it and, and think outside of it and think, you know what, this may not be the best we've ever been. And this may not be the best we're ever going to be. We may be wiped out and come back again later, stronger, bigger. Maybe those people on Mars, you know, those faces that we see in this, this potential life we see on Mars, maybe it was us. Maybe the moon was something that we went out and got and brought back based on the fact that a, an asteroid hit the Earth and knocked it off its axis and created some severe weather patterns. Maybe we didn't have a moon originally. And the moon itself is a more recent addition to the solar system. We went out and brought it. And there's some evidence out there, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts. There is a lot of evidence that would say that the moon didn't naturally occur right next to us the way it is currently situated. That there are a lot of anomalies in the orbit, in the composition of the moon that would lead you to believe that it has not always been there, obviously, and that it may have been brought in and placed. Who's to say that we didn't have the technological advancement to do that? Why did it have to be some super race from millions of light years away that did it, that brought the moon there? Those are all just questions that, that again, to me, are fascinating. I love being able to kind of run that string out. And so while this might technically kind of be looked at like a conspiracy theory episode, it really isn't. It's really more of a what-if episode. Take a look at the evidence that you have right now in front of you, the things that are right there in plain sight that you refuse to look at objectively. You absolutely refuse to think maybe something else other than what I'm being told happened here. And try it once. Try it on. Try on the idea that we have been here as humans a lot longer than we think. There's evidence that we've been there millions of years, but just no evidence that we've been civilized for millions of years. That's much more difficult to prove that we've been civilized for millions of years. It really is, for all the reasons I've mentioned earlier. What are your thoughts on that? Is it something that interests you at all, or do you think it's just boring as hell to talk about? It could be. I am not here to push my opinion on you, but more to hopefully spur some independent thought on your own and maybe some what if. Do you think that this is the best we've ever been and that it had to be aliens creating the pyramids or just thousands of Egyptian slaves creating the pyramids or Stonehenge or Gobekli Tepe or Pumapunko? So many spaces on Earth that we don't have a plausible explanation for. And if you find the topic that we've been talking about today interesting, I recommend either researching more for yourself, you know, just let your fingers do the walk in here, do a Google search and look up some of these locations, or you can go on the History Channel, look up ancient aliens and just kind of disregard the fact that they're calling everything aliens. They are at least really incredibly good at providing documentation and facts regarding the locations themselves and the construction of the monuments themselves. It's fascinating to look at. So I would absolutely recommend you do some independent research and find out some more on your own if this is something that you're interested in. Do you think it's at least plausible that we've been here and been civilized significantly longer than we currently think and that eventually this evidence could come out and then we have to go to the, through the process of rewriting the history books and kind of admitting the fact that, you know what, we don't know everything. 
there are still quite a bit of things right here on the planet that we need to research and investigate and can still find answers for. They all don't have to be out into the stars. We don't have to go out and explore the universe to get new answers. We still could probably have them right here. So if you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact us through email. It's the prove me wrongcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. You can also drop us a line on Facebook. We have Prove Me Wrong Facebook page, Prove Me Wrong Instagram. If you are just looking for more content, you can find us on the podcast app, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, really anywhere that you find podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. But I would be incredibly interested in hearing your thoughts on it. Am I just off base? It could be. But I've always been more of the realist, and to me, the simplest answer isn't aliens. It isn't something otherworldly. It's just us. And so before I sign off for the day, let me say that this episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast has been brought to you by Zendozones by J.T. Eaton. Zendozones are shaped like fearless little tiki gods. So let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendozones citronella burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones, and they're perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You get to enjoy the outdoors again. They're available now on Amazon and at Ace Hardware. Collect them all today. So if you like what you heard today and you like the Prove Me Wrong podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to the show wherever you may be. Like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, on any of the podcast apps that you may use. Like and subscribe to the show and you'll get the newest content every week. We are a weekly podcast. And for the Prove Me Wrong podcast, this is Pete Lieb. I'm your host and I'll talk to you again soon.